Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall. Today I am again joined by Mike and Menno for part two of the Individualization Roundtable. Enjoy, let's get into it. Brilliant, I think we've covered that. Well, I think you guys covered that really, really well in that obviously there's a wide range of intensities slash rep ranges that we can work within. And there might be one that's probably ideal um, and it might be a, a bit of a wide range, but don't kind of cut yourself short by not using the entire range. Um, don't just go 10 by 10 or five by five, kind of try and find um, what's working for you and do try everything to a degree. Um, so no, fantastic. And um, the next kind of topic, I don't know if many of you want to start up on this one is technique. Um, or if Mike wants to start on it, if Menno doesn't really know what Mike was kind of getting at, because Mike did come up with the list, um, Mike can go for it. But Menno, you can try technique, uh, individualization of that. Uh, I think I'll let Mike start with that. With uh, I think he probably has something specific in mind here. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Um, so I think the thing with technique is taking into account a couple of rules and then opening it up from there to generate a wide spectrum of workable techniques. Rule number one is don't do anything obviously stupid that's unsafe. Rule number two is make sure that the technique you're using addresses the largest range of motion that that muscle can experience productively and at the same time doesn't cause any sort of, um, you know, biomechanical absurdities like where the muscle is most active, it is also the least strong, so on and so forth. And Menno, I think, can knock that one out of the park, so I'll let him take it. But just to mention that. Uh, and just to make sure you're focusing on the muscle that you're actually focusing on. So if it's safe, if it's uh, biomechanically effective, and it's actually allowing you to focus on the muscle you focus. So, for example, like people are like, they'll squat safely with, you know, a lower dotic or neutral lower back. Their heels are down. Um, their biomechanics are sweet, but they're squatting super far back instead of down. Like, it's a fine exercise, but it's just not the best way to train your quads, you know. So, if you actually squat more up and up and down and let your knees flare forward, and especially with weightlifting shoes, now all of a sudden that squat is more for quads. And then, so after you've checked all those main boxes... I think the, 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 the last box to check that I can think of off the top of my head right now is um, kind of like a, a, just a personal level of uh, is there something here that feels chronically unsafe, especially like some people's knees just don't do well with any kind of squats. Fuck it for me to figure out why. But you put them on a hat squat or a leg press and they're like fish in water and the opposite applies a lot of times. Um, so as long as your exercise is face, uh, uh, prima facie, right at face value, doesn't look completely insane is a good full range of motion is biomechanically sound. And a lot of times it, it takes multiple exercises to get a whole muscle group working really well. Cause one exercise is great for the stretch one, great for the mid range one for the peak. And then if it doesn't feel like it's really hurting you in some weird way, then the rest is up to individual preference of uh, what I think I would describe as some combination of pump or mind muscle connection slash pump, like whatever feels best. So when people ask me like, Hey, what, you know, what kind of exercise should I do for quads? Like I can give you a list of six exercises. And if you do them right, you'll check all the boxes and all of them, except for the box that is your personal preference. And then do the majority of your work for the ones that you click on personal preference. That would be just my uh, sort of theoretical approach to that. Um, uh, Mano. Yeah, I think, uh, I agree with that. I think um, a lot of people have a certain idea of what good exercise technique is, but I would define technique as broadly um, 
or before I give you my definition, actually, let me put some um, myths to bed about what good technique is. A lot of people think that good technique is uh, like slow when controlled, but that doesn't have to be the case. So repetition, tempo, and technique are different things. You can be very explosive and have good technique. And sometimes it's actually advantageous to use body momentum. Like during a lateral race, there's a study, or at least a mathematical model, that looks at uh, how using a little bit of momentum can actually increase muscle activation. And during a squat, helping you, uh, momentum can help you push through the sticking points, thereby allowing you to lift greater loads, perform more work, and allow and reach higher levels of muscle activity. So momentum isn't necessarily bad. It depends on which uh, muscle group is generating the momentum. So if you're doing like biceps curls and it turns into a reverse power clean where it's not your biceps that are doing the work, but it's your hips, which are really not going to achieve any um, considerable muscle stimulation or muscle growth from that movement, then the momentum is bad. But if it's comes from the biceps, it's actually positive. If, if you're doing like a uh, downside of super slow tempo with biceps curls is that you're going to be very limited by the sticking point which is going to be at 90, 90 degrees of elbow flexion because the uh, torque of gravity is highest at that point. So um, it's not the same thing as slow. Uh, good technique also doesn't have to be pretty. And many people have this idea that, you know, it looks textbook. It looks like smooth and, and nice. But if you look at like high level back squatters, look at Lane Norton's back squat. That's not pretty. It's, it's damn effective. So some people just have a build, for example, for a squat that forces them to lean over a lot. And if that happens to achieve full range of motion, it is safe for them, it feels good, it allows them to perform enough work, then that's fine. That's good technique. So it doesn't have to be, uh, it definitely doesn't have to be pretty. And, you know, what, what is good technique then? I think it is as broad as the biomechanics that allow you to reach the desired training adaptations. That's good technique, which means it is entirely goal dependent. And usually it also means it allows you to perform a movement safely and limits connective tissue stress. But even that is not necessarily true because if you look at deadlifts, a power lifter, uh, a power lifter may want to deadlift with a rounded upper back, possibly even a flat or rounded lower back as well because it maximizes performance. So for them, the best technique is the technique that maximizes performance because it allows them to win a competition but it's not the safest technique. So there's also a difference there, um, potentially at least, between what is good technique for the deadlift for a power lifter versus a bodybuilder, and possibly even for a power lifter in contest versus out of contest. So uh, the general message is you really have to forget about some universal idea of is this perfect technique. It's highly individual. It depends entirely on your goals, and it's just what is practical, what allows you to achieve the desired result. That's good technique. So it's, it's definitely something you have to um, really customize to the individual in that regard. And it's more certain principles like safety that you generally want to adhere to, good muscle stimulation, using momentum uh, only when there is reason to use momentum, and uh, not just blindly moving the weight by whatever goes. And... Um, if you adhere to those principles, there's a wide variation of what can be good technique for certain individuals. That's great. And I think the kind of myth busting of kind of the fact that it doesn't need to look textbook is brilliant because I think a lot of people get anxious or worried about that. Um, Mike, do you have an additional point? 
No, that was a great point, especially because, uh, man, I get a lot of hate on my lateral raises because I'm using my traps um, to, you know, adduct the shoulder, abduct the shoulder, which I have no idea how traps even do that. They don't cross the fucking shoulder joint. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's just some people, um, I actually got uh, feedback on my shoulder, my overhead press standing one time, because what I do is if it's standing, I tuck my chin back and I touch my clavicles. And then as I push through, I push my head through and some guy linked a video, this instructional video by some shirtless personal trainer, fucking idiot. And he was like, this is how you're supposed to do a shoulder press. And the guy was actually arcing the press around his stationary head. And I'm like, you can't do that with 125 kilos, you dumb asshole. Your glenohumeral joint's going to pop right off. And it was just one of those things like there is absolutely something to be said for textbook technique, but you got to apply the textbook to the real world. That is not an excuse to cheat. It's an excuse to adjust your body to realistic demands and goals of the exercise. Um, and, and I have to point that, that part out, though. The it's not an excuse to cheat. Some people will take the logic of, like, there's just a set of principles, not definite rules, and you just start doing all kinds of fuckery, right? It's definitely not that. So basically, if you're doing fuckery or you're, like, doing some weird shit, if Mano Henselman's comes into your gym and goes – why are you doing that? You had better have some good fucking reasons. Not like, well, like kind of like, you know, I feel it this way. Really? That's it. That's all you got. Like you better be able to justify the biomechanics, the momentum, so on and so forth. Most people can't do that. I have every bit of patience for people that alter techniques to something that looks a little interesting. They have really good reasons for it. But a lot of times, nine times out of 10 men, would you say when you see fuckery, it, it is fuckery. It's not some kind of more intelligent way to adapt to individual differences. Definitely, especially in an average commercial gym. And I think it's a perfect time also just to give the listeners a reminder of how important technique really is just from a standardization point of view, because a lot of people will try manipulating their, manipulating their technique too, like you say, like using more momentum when it's not appropriate to exit like kind of fake progression um and progression in itself is improving your technique as well so if you're listening to this and you're thinking i need to brush up on my technique but i want to increase load on the bar kind of you can focus on just improving that technique because you're going to be using the muscle in a better way though um so brilliant on technique uh should we go on to productive body fat ranges i think meta you can probably start off on this one sure um one thing about technique to uh, we can actually give it a Try to quantify it a bit how important good technique is. Because there was a study by a pretty recent study by uh, Bat Schoenfeld at all. Um, I'm not sure if he was first offer, but he was a co-offer and he popularized it. On um, bicep scrolls with a mind-muscle connection and no mind-muscle connection. And uh, it was about double the growth in a group that used mind-muscle connection. Now I don't think that is all because of the mind-muscle connection. I personally think because they did not find it for the leg extension, no effect whatsoever. And I think it is not necessarily the fact that you are focusing on the muscle as the fact that you are controlling the movement with the muscle. So with a leg extension, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're thinking of your quads or whatever you're thinking of, the movement is set. So you're not, you're kind of really cheat the leg extension. Yeah, exactly. But if you tell people, which was the case in Brad Schoenfeld's study, they were pretty much instructed the control group to just get the weight up. And if you tell that to most men in the gym, to a bicep scroll, then it gets ugly. So uh, when you're comparing that to like strict form biceps technique, then you're looking at potentially double the gains you could get with strict technique. On, on the leg extension, what do you guys think of um, Tom Platz's technique? 
just as a, a random because it's just come into my mind. <laughs> what was his technique? I think it was very much like kick through on the loads like quite aggressively and I believe you probably do something like when you're basically failing and then you get someone to push down on it and you push against them with your legs and those sort of techniques. Mm. So think, yeah. he has a lot of techniques that uh, will work very well for muscle stimulation if your knees are made of titanium. <laughs> like his, uh, his hack squats, uh, you know, plot squats, all of those things. If I do that shit, then uh, you know, I'm in a wheelchair the next day. So I think there is a, I have no doubt that these are effective in terms of muscle stimulation, but I think there is a pretty poor risk reward to many of the things he does for his squats. Yeah. Um, just to comment on the exact techniques you described, Steve, I think that the follow through kick through with the top of the leg extension doesn't have to occur, but I think a plenty of force generation, even a pause for a whole second at the peak contraction is a really good idea with leg extensions. Just think about one of the, one of the only good reasons to do leg extensions with the majority of your volume, because it's such an inefficient way to put in quad volume is precisely to get the type of quad contraction that peaks out at the top that just simply doesn't occur biomechanically in squats or leg presses where towards the end is just dick, you know, there's just not a whole lot of tension. You can alter it with bands a little bit, but not nearly as much as you get with a leg extension. So I think that one of the worst ways to do leg extension is to do like the middle two thirds of the range of motion. It's like, that's just a really shitty replacement for leg presses, right? So I think it's really important to make sure that not only do you stretch deeply, but really peak contract. Um, and the whole failure thing, you know, those are really cool techniques when somebody pushes down on you. Um, they're cool techniques for a last microcycle before a deload, potentially. But like you pointed out earlier, Steve, they're really difficult to track. You know, how much was the guy pushing, um, so on and so forth. So I think it's just a cool trick every now and again to really spur some new growth and very advanced people. But it's just highly unnecessary and actually interfering in most sequential microcycles in which you need to track volume load and progressively increase the resistance. God knows how the fuck that works in that case. Fantastic. And I'll let Menno go to the, the body fat ranges. Thanks for covering that one, guys. Mm -hmm. All right. So there is actually, I think, uh, something like an uh, ideal body fat range for uh, nutrient partitioning, which is pretty much where, um, where energy goes in terms of if you're bulking. It depends on the, the P ratio, the nutrient partitioning ratio um, is a ratio of lean to fat mass you gain. And if you are cutting, it's the ratio that you lose. So you want good nutrient partitioning, which means that during a bulk, you mainly add muscle tissue and not much fat. And during a cut, you mainly lose fat and not much muscle or any, ideally you gain muscle. So um, there are quite a lot of studies on this topic, but not many in trained individuals. We do have um, a couple mechanisms pretty clear that relate to uh, nutrient partitioning and body fat, and that's... Um, one, one key one, inflammation, which is strongly related to insulin sensitivity. Uh, we have good research, uh, wrote an article actually on this, inflammation uh, as like the, the major regulator of muscle growth that nobody talks about, and that pretty much sums up my thoughts on inflammation. Um, excess inflammation, chronic inflammation, uh, can interfere with muscle growth, uh, because what seems to happen is that inflammation occurs after a workout, and it's actually, it's a good thing. Many people think, you know, certain things are good or bad, and inflammation is bad, like cortisol, but that's not the case. You need cortisol release and you need inflammation during your training sessions uh, for the immune system to activate and to actually start muscle repair. So 
what you want is you want low levels of chronic inflammation and then a, a very high acute signal of inflammation. And if you suppress that acute signal with, for example, there was another recent study that found this with vitamin E or C supplementation in large amounts or um, large doses of antioxidants or um, NSAIDs, non-steroidal uh, anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, you actually decrease muscle growth and especially strength development. Funny enough, it seems that performance is hindered even more than muscle growth with these things. Um, so there's actually a way that your multivitamin may be directly sabotaging your gains. Uh, I actually have that very commonly in clients. That one of the things I take out, take out the multi, uh, unless it's appropriately dosed, but most things aren't. Um, so what you want is once you want that acute signal to remain, but you also need chronic inflammation levels because it's like a signal to noise, or at least it seems to be based on the current research. You also want chronic inflammation levels to be low because if your chronic inflammation levels are here and you get this training stimulus from in the muscle tissue, which goes like this then your body barely registers it. It's like it just, it's, it's swarmed by the massive amount of inflammation that's just chronically there because you're so incredibly unhealthy as an obese, sedentary person. So there is good research um, that shows that at least in obese versus non-obese individuals, obese individuals have higher levels of protein oxidation, uh, a lower thermic effect of food, higher chronic inflammation, um, poorer insulin sensitivity, um, lower protein turnover, so less protein synthesis, greater um, oxidation, or also um, the whole protein turnover curve is suppressed. Uh, and there's also research showing that obese individuals have um, a poor uh, protein synthesis response to feeding. So when they consume protein, protein synthesis doesn't go up as much as it does in a lean individual. Uh, and there's also good research showing that obesity uh, hinders um, protein remodeling possibly because of interference with satellite cells in some way. Uh, so that strongly suggests that um, they will not recover as fast. And that's definitely my experience um, as a coach. And uh, there's also research that obese individuals are more susceptible to stress. So there's actually a pretty cool study on like uh, hand grip fatigue, showing that if you stress uh, or if they experience stress, obese individuals, then their uh, rate of torque declines faster than in lean individuals. So multiple avenues all converge on the same idea that being obese is bad for your gains, pretty much. Um, another one is hormone levels. And that's also why there's probably also a lower bound, because all of these factors pretty much improve. As you, as you lean out, all of the factors that I just mentioned, they just get better, 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 all the way up to contachet. But most people don't get the best gains of their life being at 3% body fat as like men or 10% as women because you're at the, you're literally at the, the border of essential body fat levels. And that's probably because of anabolic hormone levels. So if you're obese, as a man at least, they go to crap because you have so much um, adipose tissue that produces aromatase and aromatase is all your testosterone to estrogens uh, that you actually, you might actually get low testosterone. But when you get to a sufficiently lean level and then you get even leaner like contact shape, then your anabolic hormone levels are actually going to tank. So your growth hormone, uh, IGF-1 in particular, and testosterone um, production actually going to decline. Yeah. I would just like to add from the dark side of things, if you are administrating all of those hormones artificially, there is still something really big that's missing from contest ranges and body fat. 
folk, you know, cause somebody might hear this and think, Oh, well, if I'm, you know, assisted, it doesn't matter. I can be super lean all the time. No, it doesn't work. And every single good bodybuilding coach who works with exclusively drug using bodybuilders will tell you that if you're trying to stay too lean around, you're going to fuck yourself from growth. It doesn't matter what you take. So there are the hormonal stuff. It's absolutely true, but there are other factors that have either yet to be discovered or have been just not talked about like your body sensitivity to nutrient amounts or to its own body fat ranges uh, that, uh, that just simply don't are not covered by hormones uh, whatsoever. Um, so just, just to throw that in there is more support of the fact that even for people who are enhanced, the certain level of leanness is counterproductive, even if hormones are taken care of. Yeah. I, I expect that those factors are related to the immune system or leptin, which uh, will both be uh, compromised if you get super lean. But, um, so basically, we know that there is like a low point of leanness and there is a high point, and it's definitely below being obese. The exact range remains to be determined. But if you're looking at things like fertility level and hunter-gatherer body fat levels, which you, know, you can think of as like the natural evolutionary body fat level, uh, it's pretty lean. And in my experience, it's also uh, pretty lean. It depends a lot on the individual. In the inter-individual variability is huge. So in general, I don't like giving ranges at all. I think this is something that just varies so much that you just have to test, look at your data to see you know, what is the ratio of fat to muscle that you're gaining by whatever means you're tracking that. Uh, strength development, often you find that at a certain point of body fat, you're just adding more fat and it becomes almost impossible to increase your calories without immediately spilling over into fat gain. That's the point where you want to start cutting again. Now, in my experience, this is very very roughly like nine to fifteen percent for men and for women it's pretty much a low end is very clearly marked because that's when you lose your menstrual cycle which roughly fifteen percent a bit higher probably uh, for many uh, up to a high point like women have very good metabolic health and they don't have uh, a centralized fat distribution which is like the worst thing the most fat you gain like on your arms and whatnot doesn't really have much adverse negative metabolic effects but central fat, especially visceral fat around the organs, is incredibly inflammatory, bad for insulin sensitivity and all of the factors that I just mentioned. So another good marker you can use is when you start getting a gut. And that's probably the level uh, where it's becoming detrimental for your metabolic health and uh, your gains. So as like a very rough measure, uh, I like to keep most, uh, at least most natural uh, male competitors quite lean uh, they also generally prefer it so uh, but some people can go up quite high and I've seen some individuals that have like uh, higher testosterone levels actually when they're like 20% body fat compared to 10 um, although in research like there's one study that actually looked at those response of fertility and if you extrapolate those results the optimal fertility level is like 10.5% body fat for men which is crazy lean um, you know, for what most people would think of as like more optimum fertility. Um, so that's pretty much uh, my thoughts on that topic. And I can't stress enough that for women, it's probably not as important. You just want to maintain your menstrual cycle. You don't want to get a gut and you just want to monitor your results. For men, monitoring your results is also the most important. And, you, you know, you don't want to get obese. You don't want to get in contest shape. In between there, it's mostly a matter of fine tuning and just monitoring your data. 
Really well put, Menno. Really, really enjoyed that. I don't know if you've got much to add there, Mike, or... Not much. I think, yeah, that, you know, 10 to 15 for men and 17 to 30 for women. Um, the reason I say 30 is that a lot of females have this really awesome quality of life slash appearance slash gains trade-off that occurs above 25% fat. And if you tell females that, look, it's 17 to 25%, First of all, like Mano pointed out, it's not entirely clear that there's a huge trade-off between 25 and 30%. Um, and also, it just constrains them to this leanness that they fucking hate. It drives them wild, um, uh, uh, disordered eating, so on and so forth. So I think it's very, very good to point that out. Um, I think that the, one of the biggest differences comes up if you're a regular competitor in physique sport the top end is just never going to have to get super high because it takes so much goddamn work and time to bring it back down. Um, if you're not a physique competitor, it's a little bit more of a personal choice how high you want it to get. I will say this. If you're a female and you want it to get much above 35, I don't think you're making very good health trade-offs or long-term gains trade-offs. I think if you're a male and you're trying to make a good argument for it going much above 20%, in most cases, not all, I think it's an uphill battle. So I think when We've had male clients be like, well, I'm at like 19%, but I want to mass again, should I? And I'm like, you could, but like, eh, let's not, you know? So it's one of those things where people see the more expansive approach and they're like, oh, it's cool. It's like, yeah, but on the trade-off, it might not be that amazing. And, and another thing, uh, just two things to point out. One, these are all, you know, individual differences, super apply, and are all relative scaling. Nothing magical happens after 15%, just a little bit worse trade-off. That's it. You still gain muscle. Because people will say, like, well, I kept getting stronger as I went to 16 17 18%. No shit. You'll keep getting stronger as you go to 40 and 50%. Like, does that mean it's a good muscle fat trade-off? No, it's fucking awful because you'll have to burn that fat off and it'll warp your whole body. You'll get loose skin, never mind the health damage, so on and so forth. So, so I think it's important to point that out uh, so people don't think there's these magical cutoffs and they're looking for this sort of distinct – um, kind of situations. Buck, I had something else to say on that note, but I forgot. God damn it, brain. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. It's just, um, um, fuck, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Uh, when people think that um, they can sort of keep going higher and higher, a lot of times, you know, people will say, well, yeah, like if you constrain yourself to super, like between 10 and 15%, you have to like recut all the time and waste time massing. You're going to have to waste the same time massing anyway if you get super fat and take months of cutting to come back down to 10% or whatever. So that's not much of an argument is what I want to say. People are like, yeah, of course, if, you're, if your range is between 9 and 10%, you're fucking insane. But, you know, imagine how much weight you have to gain if you go from Meadows 9 to 15 before cutting, how much weight you have to gain to add 6% body fat? I mean, fuck. If you weigh 200 pounds or so, fuck. Like, it's a different look. It's pounds and pounds and pounds of weight. You're going to have lots of time, especially if you mass more slowly, like on the Eric Helms guidelines. It's, it's like a year of massing or something like that. So don't worry about like, you know, being like, oh, it's not enough with like people say like it's not a big enough window to mass. Like, are you out of your fucking mind? And to those people, a lot of times it's because they're massing at 1% body weight per week. Yeah, that's also a bad idea. Yeah. You know, the only thing I'd add is like another uh, problem is that many people have a very screwed idea of what their body fat percentage is. 
uh, that is compounded by most commercially available and cheap body fat measurement tools, massively underestimating body fat percentage. So if you like buy calipers and you just use like cheap calipers with uh, the formula that comes on the pack uh, or, um, or even waist circumference, um, or like the, the worst are the BIA scales that you step on oh, and tell you body fat percentage, then you can often add just like 5% to that. I've had a lot of clients, they're like, oh yeah, calipers put me at about 12%. Personally, I think I'm closer to 10. And I look at their photos and I'm like, you're overweight, dude. <laughs> you're <laughs> definitely over 21%. Over 21% is like, depending on which channels you look at, the threshold of being overweight. So, you know, technically, uh, you're, you are literally overweight. <laughs> you probably should cut. Yeah. So, um, hmm? Sorry, one real quick thing. This, I remembered what I was going to say. Eric point, has pointed out something really good before where he said, you know, uh, don't be too hasty with a 15% top end because the data on um, the real negatives of being fat are from pretty much obese people. And that's definitely true. But then again, the entire concept of obesity and body fat is a spectral concept. There's not obese and not obese. It's just a spectrum. So yes, the trade-offs aren't heavily against the 15 to 20% range, but the higher you go, the 20 to 25% ranges, are you obese if you're male and athletic, muscular 23%? No, you're not obese but you're getting to some of those downsides already. They're pretty significant. So we, we don't have to speak about it as obese versus not. And like, it's a completely different group of people. It's a spectrum. And the higher you go, like I said, if you're going beyond 20% on your mask, then you got to have some good ass reasons for that shit. And I'd love to hear them because a lot of times they're just not very good. Yeah. Another like super practical, uh, very rough, but super practical guideline for men is if you flex your abs in the in favorable lightning in the mirror, you see no app de definition, you probably need to cut. Yep. Fantastic. And I think the only thing I personally would add there is you spoke really well to people kind of um, underestimating their body fat percentage. I think coming as a competitor myself, and I know a lot of competitors, they almost overestimate their body fat percentage and they get very worried about actually gaining the weight. I think likewise, that's just as bad a place to be because they don't ever actually be honest with themselves and realize that they don't feel that well. Because um, I know I tried to stay leaner beforehand and I definitely held back my progress. Whereas when I allowed the body fat to come up a little bit, still within like a reasonable amount, um, I feel much better and actually progress is better. So just talking to those people who are a bit afraid of seeing the scale and the body fat go on, um, if you're not competing anytime soon, so long as you're staying lean, like Menno said, and you'll be able to flex your abs in the mirror and you can still see some sort of, sort of shape, then you're okay. Let yourself kind of gain. Yeah. I think that the key message is you don't have to get fat, but you do have to gain. So, yeah. you, I mean, you can do like mini cuts and mini bulks and just throw like 9 to 12%, go back to 9, bulk up to 12 and do it that way and stay really lean year round. But if you're just sticking with the 9% and you're just not gaining, I mean, think about it. If your weight isn't going up, how are you gaining muscle mass? It just doesn't happen. And especially, you know, I know some of my programs are not like body recon programs, but if you're like an advanced trainee, you're not going to gain any more muscle mass unless you're bulking. Bulking is the only way you're going to put on substantial size. 
So for like a competitor, that's probably the case for you. And if you're just going to stick with the 9%, then you're going to stick with the 9% in terms of weight and body fat percentage, which means your muscle mass is also going nowhere. Yeah. The way I like to say that is if someone's like 145 pounds and they're really lean, I'm like, I think you need to gain weight. And I've had responses where like, well, I don't know. I want to gain muscle, but not necessarily weight. I'm like, show me a jacked 145 pounder. And they're like, uh, and I'm like, they don't exist. You physically need more weight on you to be jacked. <laughs> At some point you have to gain weight. You can't get away from that. So it's just crazy when people are like, I'm just going to recomp forever. You're like, all right, you're, you know, show Roly Winkler, who's, who's on stage at like 270 pounds. Show me how he recomped, where he recomped from. Was he 270 fat at one point? Like, no, clearly, right? You just have to gain weight. And I'm, I'm gaining weight now. It sucks. I just have to bitch to someone. I'm eating 800 grams of carbs per day, and I just want to kill myself. <laughs> There's no purpose to life anymore. We are with 260 pounds, so you're at 263. 263. So I'm coming towards, I'm over 190, but I'm not quite at 600 grams of carbs. So it's still fairly high. Um, and I can bitch and moan. <laughs> anyway, the, the last topic that we have, if you guys have time, is nutrition. Um, so do you guys have enough time to cover this one? There's a whole thing for nutrition. Yeah, the whole of nutrition, that's going to be tricky. <laughs> so I don't know, was this an, a point I added, Mike, or was this something you wanted to talk about, individualizing nutrition for hypertrophy? Boy. Obviously, I mean, I don't know if we need to go over the basics of kind of having this much protein per pound or anything, whether this kind of individualization of whether you go for more carbohydrates or more fats, that sort of thing, whether some people want really high protein intakes or lower protein intake. Yeah. It's inter- you know, um, the only thing I'd have to say about that, just to give it the, the, the sort of the, sh- the only kind of short explanation that we can in a, a method like this is start with really good basic general guidelines and play with the boundaries a bit to see where you react uh, the best. Um, I think the one thing I wanted to cover for sure was a minimum fat intake guidelines uh, I think that some people can do on a minimum of, you know, uh, 0.3 or sorry, 0.6 per kilo. So like if you weigh 100 kilos, you take in 60 grams of fat per day. I think that's a really rough working minimum that you should start at. But if you, you increase a little bit or decrease from there, you can. So if you decrease, you can have more carbs, which is great. And if you have no negatives, that's awesome. But sometimes you increase and your sex drive goes up, your training uh, sort of virility goes up like crazy and, and shit just goes better. I tend to find that, you know, for me, my predicted value is is uh, pretty close to if I go below that, like it's like roughly 75 grams per day. If I'm consistently below 75 grams of fat per day, my sex drive, and it doesn't matter how hormones, uh, you know, I'm taking in my alternate universe here, but, um, you know, it doesn't matter. The hormones really don't matter at that point. If it's below that amount of fat, um, I don't have a sex drive and, and I, I feel deflated in training and everywhere. And like my recovery doesn't seem as good. As soon as I go just a bit over that value, everything comes back to life. So um, just the only thing I want to say on that is, you know, those values, especially with a fat minima, some people read the fat minima and they stick to it and they just, it just sucks. Right. Uh, or they, they, they have a totally great time and it could be like double what they really need and they never push it lower because they're like, oh, something bad's going to happen. So just stick to basic nutritional protocols, including the gaining uh, you know, how much you gain over the course of a month, how much you lose. And don't be afraid to have a, a mesocycle here or there where you play with the upper and lower ends and see what happens. 
That's all I got to say. Matt, anything striking your particular interest in that? Well, I think Steve should put in an affiliate link for Bulletproof Coffee right in the middle there. Boom. Done. Yeah. I think that would be uh, perfect. But um, yeah, I think we should leave nutrition to another podcast because there's um, like carb tolerance and stuff. There's uh, ketogenic, whether you respond to that. There's, I think there's quite a lot to, uh, to talk about there. Okay, perfect. No, I want to thank you guys for being with me for this uh, past hour. Um, I'm sure all the followers really, really thank you as well. These podcasts have been going down incredibly well. You guys cover these topics in a really, really comprehensive manner. Um, So thank you guys and thank everyone for listening and we will catch you soon. My pleasure. Thanks, Steve.